the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. Hey, everybody. So happy to be with you today and so grateful to you all for listening and thank you for the awesome questions that you send in to this us. This is episode 98. That's right. We are two episodes away from hitting triple digits. 100 episodes. That's amazing. And we're going to do something special for our 100th yeah. episode. Stay tuned. So stay tuned. There's going to be a special something. We're not saying yet, <laughs> but we think you'll like it. Yeah. Okay, so... You know, we do a little bantering. Of course. Banting? Is it banting or bantering? I don't know. I don't either. But we bant a little bit (laughs) (laughs) at the beginning of our podcast. And today, I am springing a question on you, Wendy, that you didn't know I was going to spring on you. Mm -hmm. Just for all of your information, I don't like spontaneous questions, so I'm having to trust my husband on this one. Go. Yes. So we are... Not only approaching our 100th episode, but right. we're approaching our 25th anniversary, yeah. which is next week. Our wedding anniversary, right. November 18th. Mm-hmm. And uh, based on when we're recording this, that November 18th is next week. And I wanted to ask you for your overarching reflections on 25 years of married life. What 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 has 25 years of marriage uh, meant to you? What has it what do, you, do you have any advice for people who are in a hard time of their marriage? What What does 25 years of married life, what wisdom does it provide you, Wendy, to share with others? How about that? Oh, my goodness. I knew I wasn't going to like having you ask me a random question, but I'll try. Okay. So, first of and all... And you have my full permission to speak plainly. Thank you. Thank you so much. I would say that the, it is very significant our wedding anniversary are like if you think about like key moments in our store in a person's story in a person's life like that is an incredibly decisive moment of like this tells now the the remainder of the story hinges on this at least in our case up to this point you know um and so it's it's really a significant thing that promise that we make to one another yes, it is. in the presence of God, the ministers of the church, all our gathered family and friends who are able to be there. Like this is really important for our lives. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, I can't live any other life than the life that I'm living. And I know that so much of it hinges on that day. And this life of course involves Lots of struggles and challenges, big and small, lots of blessings. And yet for me, I think the story of being married has been a real story of growing and maturing in Mm -hmm. myself. I've seen it. Thank you. (laughs) I've I've been the (laughs) recipient of your growth. Yeah. Well, and so I think that that's, you know, The most important thing is that God has used this as a true vocation, you know, and it is meaning it's the way that he's using to purify our hearts and to lead us closer to him. Um, It's the source of a great deal of like 
strength, the strength in being bonded to another human being yeah. is um, really significant. So that when there are struggles for either one of us individually, there's immediately this other person who's committed to journey with us. And we're not always perfect at journeying with one another, but we still are to the best of our abilities there for one another. And so yeah. that's that's been a huge gift to to me in my life. Um, Can I share something that that uh, Scott Hahn said at our Congress? Yeah. And uh, by the way, if you haven't already gotten access to our Congress, it's still available, tobcongress.com. Anyway, Scott Hahn gave a great talk about a document from Pope Pius XI mm-hmm. on marriage. Casti Canubia came out in 1930 or 31, I forget. And in there, he says that the main purpose of marriage is to help your spouse grow in sanctity. Mm. And if you have a a proper understanding of sanctity, and I I don't want to pietize this and make it sound like we have halos over our heads or something, uh, or we're fit for some kind of holy card in the like Catholic school sense of holy cards, which drove me crazy. Um, because they just didn't, they just didn't seem real. These saints on the holy cards just didn't seem real to me. Anyway, that's a side issue, but I'm not trying to canonize us or, or pietize this, but I have seen in 25 years of married life that this is what marriage has done for us. It has helped us grow in, in holiness In holiness only, there's no other way to holiness than through the cross. That's the way to holiness. Mm. That's how we grow in holiness. And I have seen you, Wendy, I've seen you embrace the cross in these 25 years. Mm -hmm. And the fruit of that has been new joy in you, a a depth of love that flows out of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know, and I know, and God knows well, you're, you're not a perfect human being, uh, but I've seen you grow in holiness. I've seen you embrace the sacrament in that way. And I'll, I'll just say this, that just as we have, you know, our own personal prayer life that is just between us and God, in a marriage, we have our relationship that has aspects to it that are just between the married couple. And a huge grace for me in living our sacrament is having really understood what a privilege it is to be in that relationship mm-hmm. with you that there is such a it's such a deep honor to be in that close intimate relationship with you on this earth and um so if i didn't sense that if it didn't feel like a gift and an honor and a privilege but somehow like a burden or you know a curse or some kind Mm -hmm. of negative thing the whole story of growing together in marriage would be very different so i'm very grateful for that grace that sense of life as gift as a person of a person as a gift me to you and you to me um all of that is just such a huge help to us and in finding joy and meaning, deep meaning, and being married to one another. Thanks, Wendy. I said to you the other night, we were reflecting on our birthday. We have the same birthday, which was last week, November 7th. And uh, I just said to you that I'm so grateful in these years of being married to you that 
that there are truths that you have stood on um, that have helped cast out lies that I've believed. Mm, yeah. And I'm, I'm very grateful to you for that. There's a deep call to liberation through living out the sacrament of marriage, which is another way of saying a call to holiness because mm -hmm. it's for freedom that Christ has set us yeah. free. Holiness is real liberation, liberation from the things that really bind us. And one of the things that really binds us is, is lies, mm -hmm. lies about who we are, lies about the world, lies about God, lies about uh, what makes us lovable. Um, and my wish for you on your birthday was that your husband would be ever more liberated from the lies he's believed <laughs> for your sake and for mine, but for your sake too. But that's that's the working of our sacrament. Yeah. And I just thought in light of a reflection on our 25th anniversary that I just express my gratitude to you for believing, believing truth mm -hmm. and that that has really helped me to enter more deeply into the truth. Thank you, my love. Thank you, too. Indeed. Same. Shall we go sure. and answer some questions? Absolutely. <clears throat> Have some questions. The first one is from a listener named Andrea. Hey, Andrea. She says, Dear Christopher and Wendy, thank you very much for the work you do in this battlefield. You are welcome, Andrea. I'm new to this TOB. My question for you is, did Adam and Eve have sex in Eden? If yes, why does the Bible say that Adam knew Eve only after the fall? And why was their love fruitful after the fall, not before? Uh, Andrea, that is... Uh... Great question. You are not the first person to ask it. Lots of people have asked this question. And if there's anybody out there wondering, as a new listener, what is TOB, just so we don't get too inbred in our in-speak, yeah. yeah. TOB's Theology of the Body, mm -hmm. St. John Paul II's beautiful teaching that we are always trying to expound upon and enter into its yes. nooks and crannies here in this podcast. Um, John Paul has a nuanced answer to that question. Mm -hmm. He says things like, the call to become one flesh goes back to the beginning, which it does. It's clearly right there in Genesis 2, 24. Uh, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He says other things like, uh, the call to communion is a perennial call. And he's correcting an idea. Perennial means, again, back to the beginning, an original call. This mm -hmm. was God's original design. He made us male and female in the beginning for the purpose of becoming one flesh from the beginning mm -hmm. as a sign of an eternal reality, which is God's desire to wed us, to become one in the flesh with us, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So this is an original plan. This is a fundamental plan. It's a primordial sacrament, John Paul II says, meaning an original sign of the divine reality. Um, he doesn't come right out and say uh, they had sexual intercourse, but he says they lived the fullness of an incarnate communion. That's his expression. And he's kind of dancing around the question because uh, they're, they're, the way we experience sexual intercourse in our fallen world is fraught with all kinds of fallen realities that weren't present in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And he speaks of the original union as, as something that coincided with their virginal value. What the heck does that mean? Mm -hmm. 
the, the, the first man and woman were virginal, but this does not mean an absence of a union. It means a perfection of a union. So we, we can't really peer into it. We can't uh, apply our own experiences to it because it's, it's this, this beginning is a mysterious reality. Mm. But there was a, a virginal communion, which does not mean, again, asexual or non-genital. Or it, it, it means there is a perfect integrity of their body and their soul. Mm -hmm. They were naked without shame in the beginning. And that reveals that there is this perfect integrity of the spiritual and the physical. When they looked at the physical, they didn't stop at the physical. The physical led to an interior gaze, he says. They saw the full dignity of the person. And their communion, which was incarnate, meaning bodily, their bodily communion, those are expressions John Paul uses to describe the original communion in the beginning. Their incarnate bodily original communion was an integrated experience. There was a full revelation of their persons. There was not a fear. There was not a shame involved. There was not a disunity in the physical and the spiritual. We are on the journey in the sacrament of marriage of reclaiming what John Paul calls the original virginal value of the human being. He says authentic marital love, and here he's speaking of marital intercourse, mm -hmm. it does not involve a loss of virginity, but he says every time a husband and a wife become one flesh according to the Creator's original plan, if they're living that original plan out, uh, and that means open wide as fallen human beings to the grace of redemption. Mm -hmm. It becomes a rediscovery every time, he says, of that original virginal value. In other words, it becomes a reintegrating experience. Authentic marital union is reintegrating. It's not rupturing. When, we, when a man and woman, even if they're married, are just using each other in the sexual act, treating one another less as persons and more as objects for their own selfish indulgence or selfish gratification, that becomes a disintegrating experience. And here, disintegration is a loss of virginity. It's a rupturing of that original virginal value. Again, it means, the virginal value means the integrity of body and soul. So here's another example. When we say Blessed Virgin Mary, we tend to jump right away to the conclusion, oh, that means she didn't have sexual intercourse with Joseph. It does mean that. We believe that as Catholics, she never had sexual intercourse with Joseph. But first we should be realizing that Blessed Virgin Mary means she was perfectly integrated mm -hmm. as body and in body and soul. She was not ruptured. All this to say, to come back to Andrea's question, yes. uh, they, the first man and woman, according to the teaching of John Paul II, had some form of virginal incarnate communion. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts you want to add, Wendy? Uh, well, she did go on to ask about um, <clears throat> fruitfulness. Oh, yeah, fruitfulness, right. I can say something about that, but do you want to say anything yeah. more? I would put it this way. Every single time a husband and wife become one flesh and they open themselves to the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, that union is fertile. It's fertile in a supernatural sense that we won't see until the other side. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it bears fruit in 
an, an offspring, right? Mm -hmm. Biologically, we conceive a new life. But always, always it is fertile in a supernatural sense. So whatever form of communion they engaged in this, what we've been calling this virginal, primordial, incarnate communion, again, <laughs> to use all kinds of words from JP2, uh, it was fertile. It was fertile in a supernatural sense. Mm -hmm. It is a bit of a mystery, and I would leave it to other biblical scholars who are brighter than I to, to expound as to, to why, uh, why they didn't conceive until after the fall. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't say. I, I, really, yeah. I really don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, I've had some musings about it, but they're kind of personal, and, and they're, they're, I don't want to send people down a, just my own private mm -hmm. thought. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. I think just a couple of thoughts that come to me as we're talking about this. One is that sometimes this, this reality of this, you know, Genesis chapter two and three, where we're seeing these things can cause people to wonder. And it's wonderful too, uh, to be looking at, to the scripture, to speak to us about you know, the human realities. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's very good. Sometimes we're tempted to think, um, for example, if it doesn't say exactly that they were, that Adam knew his wife Eve before the fall, that might mean that sex is a bad thing. Right, right. Because it only exists after sin. Right. Um, so I think that that's kind of what we're trying, maybe the heart of the Yeah, question. we don't want to go there. And we have to maintain... Even the call to 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 bring children into the world was original. Yes. It was before sin yes. entered the world. The call to be fruitful and multiply is part of God's original mm -hmm. design, right? The call of the two to become one flesh is part of God's original design. John Paul II does say, and this is very interesting, and I've elaborated on this in various places, including... Here's another pitch for our TOB Congress, uh -huh. including in my most recent talk at the Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, I elaborated on, on this teaching of John Paul II. He says that sin and death entered in a certain sense or in some way, he says, and he uses that qualifier to say, listen up, be careful, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Sin and death entered in some way through the very heart of that unity which man and woman were called to enter from the beginning in becoming one flesh. He's not saying, this is so important, he's not saying that their union was the cause of the entrance of sin and death, but because their union is so holy as a primordial sacrament of the divine reality, the enemy is after it from the beginning. And I expand on this again in my talk from the TOB Congress just a couple weeks ago, that uh, where Edith Stein says, St. Edith Stein, who's otherwise known as St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, mm -hmm. she says that the original sin may well have been a manner of spousal union at variance with the original plan. In other words, a distortion of God's plan for sex, taking that beautiful sacrament and twisting it, distorting it. I think that's a profound insight and a very plausible uh, idea as as to what the nature nature of the original sin might have been. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, you're going to have to go to tobcongress.com. <laughs> Sounds very good. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It's often asked question, and I thank. I'm very grateful for John Paul II and his just 
um, affirmation. Yeah, he, he is correcting a faulty notion that yeah. you can find in various otherwise holy Christian authors uh, who have led people to believe that somehow sexual intercourse itself is the result of the fall. <clears throat> Wrong answer. <laughs> what is the result of the fall is concupiscence, the disordering of our passions, where we end up treating another person as an object for our selfish pleasure. That's a result of the fall. The sexual union is not. Yes. Next question. Yes, let's go. This is from an anonymous listener saying, Hello, I am new to Theology of the Body, but have found what I've experienced of it so far to be very helpful. So glad to hear. My question is related to a mindset and heart change when it comes to sexual sins. When I have crossed a boundary sexually, it's hard not to give up afterwards. My mind tells me that I've already failed, so it doesn't matter if I even try to be pure in that area of failure in the future. It feels like there's no going back. I know this is a lie, but it feels like the truth. Even mm, though I believe God mm, forgives mm. me, I've still failed. Can you offer any advice? Bless you, dear anonymous listener. I'm sure everyone listening can relate to what you're going through. And I'm going to quote here an, an Eastern Orthodox theologian named Timothy Patitsis, P-A-T-I-T-S-A-S. I believe I spelled that correctly. <clears throat> Timothy Patitsis says, when we find ourselves in that situation of sexual struggle and then self-condemnation for our failure, he says it's often because we're picking up the sexual struggle by the wrong handle. Mm. And I, I, I think that's insightful. And what is he saying? We're often self-reliant in our attempts to grow in virtue because we haven't really been mentored or witnessed in to the gospel as a gift. What do I mean by that? Witnessed in is a strange expression. But what do I mean by that is we haven't had people in our lives who have witnessed to us in such a way that we realize, oh, I don't have the power to grow in virtue of myself. Uh, all I have is weakness. The gospel is the infilling of my weakness with God's strength. That is a very different paradigm than what many of us grow up with, myself included, which was be a good boy, mm -hmm. you know, which translated, get your act together. Uh, put it more colloquially, and as my spiritual director put it to me years ago, if you're familiar with my teaching, you've heard me say this before. He said to me years ago, and it was one of those game-changing moments, he said, Christopher, you are a recovering perfectionist. You think a saint is someone who has his S-H-I-T together. And then he went on to, to enlighten me. <laughs> said, Christopher, a saint is not someone who has his S-H-I-T together. A saint is someone who has all his S-H-I-T open, open to the merciful love of the Father. That was a game-changing moment for me in realizing my perfectionism is a kind of self-reliant striving to grow. That creates inevitable failures and then inevitable self-loathing because my self-reliance wasn't reliable. So I beat myself up. 
The road to perfection is very different than perfectionism. The road to perfection recognizes not that I got to get my act together. It recognizes I'm a mess. I'm a broken human being and I'm loved right here. And that love allows me or, or that love itself transforms me, uh, empowers me to do what I couldn't do. Uh, put it this way. Peter, of himself, had no ability to walk on water. What enabled him to get out of that boat? His eyes were set on Jesus. And even when he sank, Jesus didn't say, what the heck are you doing out here? Get your butt back in that boat, you fool. He said, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And he reached out and pulled him up. So I would say to this person struggling with failure in sexual sin, right? And, and also a tendency to despair, like, I've mm -hmm. already fallen, there's no hope for me. Right. Uh, I might as well just... And I love that this writer said, I know it's a lie, but it feels true. So number one, plant your flag in the truth. Make an act of your mm -hmm. will, an act of faith, that what, what you know to be true at your own admission, and rebuke the lie in the name of Jesus. We have authority through our baptism, to rebuke mm -hmm. lies in the name of Jesus. So just say, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke the lie that tells me I'm a hopeless case. There's a certain truth underneath that lie, which we have to acknowledge, that on my own, in my own strength, I am a, quote, hopeless case. I cannot change myself. I cannot save myself. I cannot grow in virtue by myself. Mm -hmm. I can only open my weakness to the Lord. That's the right handle with which to pick up the struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll quote St. Augustine here. The law was given so that grace might be sought. What does that mean? The, God's law, God's plan for our lives mm -hmm. is given to us to help us recognize that we can't live it on our own. It's given to us to get us to the point of crying out in our need for God's grace. But here's the good part. The law was given so that grace might be sought, and grace was given so that the law might be fulfilled. Mm. That's the freedom of recognizing I cannot do it on my own, but when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the path to real growth in Christian virtue. It's not a passivity. It's not a waiting for God to come do all the work. There is an active receptivity to the grace that does involve and demand effort on our part. But even that effort that we are exerting is itself the working of grace. It's all grace. I can relate to some of these things, and I, I know that men and women may have some different experiences on this particular topic. So I just want to share a couple of yeah, thoughts please. from the from a woman's and perspective. And we don't know if this was a woman or a man no, who wrote don't. the question, yeah. Um, that one of the things that can happen if these sexual um, failings are happening in an ongoing relationship with another person is that, well, first of all, we may have already heard it said, because I remember hearing this said, there's no going back. You know, once yeah. you've done it, you've yeah. done it. Yeah. That's it. Just give up kind of thing. That That's kind of spoken out there. Right. Um, so we've, we've kind of already stored that somewhere in our brains if we've heard that before. Which I'm, is so contrary to what we were just talking about. Right. I'm not quoting it as though it's true. Yeah. I, I don't believe it is true. Never have believed that's true. The that's, reclaiming of our virginal right. value we're all called to or that we were just talking right. about. Right. 
um, but also the challenge of in in the relationship itself if we are regretting something that means often talking with from a woman's perspective talking with the man that we're in the relationship with about those feelings and that can be an overwhelming prospect mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. can feel like oh what if he doesn't regret it right what is his reaction to me going to be and that can seem like an overwhelming thing as well that the the planting your flag in the truth can sometimes be in the the truth that you have dignity and value yes, yes. even if you disappoint the person you're right. in the relationship with right. even if you say something he doesn't want to hear that the lord is with you loving you even more than that man is able to love you right now and really the grace that can come through having those conversations I'm even telling this to myself, you know, maybe not on this particular topic, but just in general, the grace that comes through a hard conversation is worth the hardness of the conversation. Yeah, we've had many hard conversations <laughs> yes. in these 25 years of sure, married love, sure. and I, I, I can recall certain instances where I, I could almost feel you needing to recognize your dignity does not come from what I think about you mm -hmm. as you're telling me what you needed to tell me. <laughs> And that is an awesome place of freedom for us. Mm -hmm. When we are seeking from another human being a, uh, uh, the, to be the, when we're seeking of another human being to be the foundation of our own sense of self, right. we're in trouble. That's something we, we must seek from the Lord. Other people can help us, mm -hmm. right, in affirming our, our true sense of self, but only the Lord has authority to to tell us who we are, because he's the one who authored who we are. That's where authority comes from. And so if we can together, if we can come together and offer, open our hearts and our, our longing to the Lord, we may have to do that separately, depending on the relationship. But to really acknowledge that these sins that we've committed are related to real longings, there's a physical component, but there's so much more than yes. that that we're longing for. And to be able to direct that, open that up to the Lord, as we often say, you know, to look at what's inside our hearts and lift it up to him and ask for him to fulfill us and to console us and to minister to us in those aching places in our hearts. It's yeah. very, it, it is real and it does bring freedom. Our sexual failings are in some ways a map to certain traumas in our life. Mm -hmm. And if we learn how to read that map, the Holy Spirit can do it, good counseling can do it, good mm -hmm. spiritual direction can help us read that map. But almost inevitably, our sexual failings, not almost, inevitably, our mm -hmm. sexual failings tell us a story uh, about our own, our own lives, our own traumas, our own... Um, lies that we've believed about ourselves or about others. And so I encourage anyone out there in uh, repeat, you might find yourself just repeating sexual sins and you've tried everything under the sun to, to find freedom. I would invite you, have you looked at your sexual failings and even, you know, the, the, the content of the, what are you attracted to sexually? This is kind of a map to your own heart. 
And I'm not a counselor, and I, I can't tell you necessarily how to, to read that map, but I know enough from my own interior journey. I know enough from mm -hmm. all the reading I've done and all the, um, you know, interacting with people and their struggles that our, our sexual desires, our sexual failures, um, if there's a certain type of pornography that attracts you, those things are maps to our soul. A certain behaviors that might arouse us. Bring that to the Lord. Say, Lord, why do I find this arousing? And it might be something so shameful that you are just afraid to put it out into the light. The light is your friend. Put it out into the light. Say, Lord, shine your light on why I'm attracted to this. Shine your light on why this is a, a repeated area of struggle and failure in my life. And say, Lord, is there some trauma in my life, some trauma in my childhood that would shine a light on these painful failures? The Holy Spirit can point you to, to places, to memories, to experiences you may have had. Um, I, I would urge you to find good spiritual direction and good counseling to help you guide, help guide you through that. And we have resources. Well, they're always in the show notes. Uh, of where to go for good counseling. Mm -hmm. So I hope you find those resources helpful. Uh, the next question is from Jose. He says, Hi, Wendy and Christopher. Hi, your, Jose. Your podcast has blessed me over one and a half years. I love it. I'm so glad. Here's my question. When a person passes away, we pray for his or her soul. What about the body? Yeah, I, I could say so much, and I have said so much, written so much on this topic. Theology of the body is itself a response to this question. Mm. Here's the th key thing to remember. Mm -hmm. It is the person who is destined for eternal life, not just the soul of the person. Mm -hmm. The person is not the soul. The person is the unity of body and soul. When we understand soul as uh, something that's kind of housed in human flesh, then we think of death as the liberation of the soul from the prison of the body. This is not our faith. This is not Christianity. This is Platonism. This goes back to the philosopher Plato. He was the one who considered the body to be the prison of the soul, and he considered death a liberation of the soul, from the body. As Peter Kreeft says, uh, when the soul is separated from the body at death, this is not a liberation. This is actually a, a confinement for the soul. Mm. The soul will not be fully itself. The soul will not be fully liberated until it's reunited with the resurrected body. We profess belief in the creed. We say, we say it, it right in our creed. We don't what we're saying. I believe in the resurrection of the body and, and life, life everlasting. everlasting. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Yeah. This is our faith. We profess belief in the resurrection of the body. The Catechism says uh, there is no Christian belief more controversial than the resurrection of the body. Mm. How can we believe? So many religions, you know, believe that there's some afterlife and mm -hmm. that we continue in some spiritual fashion. But the Catechism says, how can we believe that this body, so clearly mortal, will rise to everlasting life, right? A year ago, we buried my sister, Emily. 
Uh, she died of cancer at, at age 45, six, at age 46. And uh, her body's in the ground. It's rotting away. I have every reason to believe that her soul is experiencing some form of union with the Lord. Uh, but her soul, this is St. Thomas Aquinas, her soul is in an inhuman state, right? A soul separated from the body is not liberated, as Plato says. It's in a, an extreme form of paralysis, Peter Kreef says. Uh, and it won't be fully liberated again until, it won't be fully human till the resurrection of her body at the end of time. And I, you know, when he talked about that we pray for the person's soul, I think it's just worth mentioning, it's in our tradition, first of all, that one of the works of mercy is to bury the dead, right? which is obviously a deep honoring of the body. I sing at a lot of funerals, so I am very aware of the, the, the deep, meaningful gestures of sprinkling the coffin with holy water in memory of the sacredness of yes. this body and of the priest walking around the remains, the body, with incense, like as a gesture of lifting yes. and of hopefulness toward Woo. the resurrection of this body, that incense traveling sweetly upward toward heaven. You know, that's Woo. the destiny of this body. So, you know, maybe we tend in conversation to say, pray for so-and-so's soul, but in our actions and in our, um, you know... Liturgy. In our liturgy, we're yeah. showing the the profound importance of the body. Uh, I would say in closing on this one that, you know, there is a sense in which we pray, you know, we have All Souls Day, mm -hmm. in which we're praying for the souls in purgatory. Their bodies are not in purgatory. Their mm -hmm. bodies are in the ground. Mm -hmm. But what, when we say praying for souls, let us always keep in mind that the prayer for the soul is the fullness of redemption. And the fullness of redemption includes and is integral with the redemption of the body, mm -hmm. right? Romans chapter 8, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the body. That's in Ephesians chapter 5, right? He's the Savior of the body. So we are seeking not a salvation uh, from the flesh, we are seeking a salvation of the flesh, and that's what we declare. That's what Christianity is. If there is no resurrection of the body, St. Paul says, our faith is in vain. But since Christ has been raised from the dead bodily, our faith is not in vain. That's the good news. Well, everyone, thank you for listening to this episode. We are drawing to a close. I just want to invite you again. If you are blessed by the work we do, if you're blessed by this episode of the podcast, please share it. Uh, hit that share button and get it out to friends and family who who need to hear what you are hearing. It's a great way to, to be an evangelist of this message by mm -hmm. sharing these episodes. And also, if you've been blessed by the work that we do here at the Theology of the Body Institute, we invite you to consider being a patron of this work. And we have some very exciting things on the horizon for our patrons. We'll be announcing that in the near future. But you can click on the link in the show notes to learn more about being a patron. We'd be so grateful for your patronage. Until next time, know, as always, you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute, with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you. 
but remind you that they're not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.